This free podcast of Speaking of Faith is provided by American Public Media. Please support this valuable public radio service and contribute today. Go to the station listings page at speakingoffaith.org to learn more about becoming a member of your local public radio station. I'm Krista Tippett. Today, Room for Jay, one family's struggle with schizophrenia. Schizophrenia afflicts one in 100 American adults and often has a religious dimension. This hour, we'll hear how one family has learned to see human nature and religious experience differently. We call it a delusion. He calls it reality. People tell him he's not God. He's not Jesus. In his mind, that's as real as my being a wife and mother. In some ways, we're very fortunate because Joel is still with us and he's still connected, but tomorrow we could lose him. And we live in that knowledge and live in faith that no matter what happens, that our caring made a difference. This is Speaking of Faith. Stay with us. I'm Krista Tippett. My guest today, Dan Hansen, has written an unusual book about living with his son who has schizophrenia and who believes that he is God. Dan and his wife, Sue, reflect frankly this hour on how they've learned to see mental illness, normalcy, and religion differently. From American Public Media, this is Speaking of Faith, Public Radio's conversation about religion, meaning, ethics, and ideas. Today, Room for Jay, A Family Struggles with Schizophrenia. Dan and Sue Hansen raised their family on a small lake in a suburb of Minneapolis. Dan was a corporate executive who eventually left to pursue his first love, teaching. Sue worked part-time, volunteered in the community, and raised their three children. Their youngest, Joel, who is now 30, was always adored by his parents and two older siblings. He was a delightful child, though as his parents say, special, intense and thoughtful, prone sometimes to fragility and sometimes to a single-mindedness that bordered on arrogance. After he had a psychotic break as a young adult, he was first diagnosed as bipolar, then schizophrenic. Schizophrenia is a debilitating brain disorder that interferes with a person's ability to think clearly, to distinguish reality from fantasy, to manage emotions and relate to others. Over the years, Joel has intermittently been hospitalized, he has disappeared temporarily, and he has held down jobs. He once moved to Alabama to become a preacher. Another time, he flew to California after voices told him, he said, to become a famous model. I met with Dan and Sue Hansen to hear their story and the insights they have to share with others, including how they've grappled spiritually with schizophrenia. In retrospect, you know, you tend to look up or to invent symptoms if you don't watch out because we always knew that Joel was a little different because he was so innocent and um, so direct. But until the episode occurred, we just assumed that he was a different a different kid. Uh, the episode itself was a shock, and I think it put us into a place where we didn't know who we were, let alone who he was and what to do with it. And so the announcement when he came home and told us that he was God was... The only way I can put it is it put us into a tailspin. And uh, for a while, I don't, I'm not sure that we really knew even what to feel. It was almost like uh, a numbness that set in because here was our son who we loved, who we thought was actually special and a gift, and his behavior was frightening and bizarre. And so we almost had to get reacquainted with him, and that was the start, I think, of the process of getting to know Joel um, as a separate person. How old was he when he made that announcement? He had just turned 20, is that correct? Yes. Right. I can't imagine, I mean, I wonder if when someone makes an announcement like that, you must have reacted with disbelief at first. I mean, or was it so clear that he wasn't joking? Was it just so clearly serious? Well, I think he had been 
we could see that he was becoming manic, I think, two or three weeks before that. He was, his speech was becoming faster and faster. He seemed to need less sleep. He seemed to be living in sort of a different dimension. He told us that he was going to become a famous basketball star, and we knew that he was not in touch with what we call reality. And so the the day that it happened, actually, there was a phone call, and Sue took the phone, and Joel was just elated and almost crying and talking about this new life that he was going to live and that he had run into this person who was an old friend but was actually um, someone that he had to go away with because he was his counterpart. His kind of spiritual counterpart. Right? Yes. Mm-hmm. This particular character became the devil and or the Antichrist, and he was both lured into and afraid of this character. So it was... To us, it was obviously a total mystery, but to him, it seemed to make absolute sense. Everything had been revealed to him. And this interesting kid that we had who was innocent and naive in many ways, suddenly it was as if he knew his calling. It was as he knew his purpose in life. This was it. Which on one hand is something you want for your children, especially when they're 20 years old, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Any parent whose child either develops a chronic illness or or mental illness, something that is so overwhelming. I think you step back and you go, well, this can't be happening. This can't, this isn't happening. This is going to be okay. We're going to be able to get some pills and make this better. And I think as it progressed, even a matter of just days, not even weeks, we realized very quickly that this was something that was far more serious and uh, we weren't going to be able to just wish it away or make it better quickly. I think it's important to talk right away about the, you know, the biological foundation of this illness. I mean, you you talk about how, and I'm sure this is natural, this is true with all illness of all kinds, especially with our children. We wonder what we could have done differently. Hmm. You know, you write, Dan, that you did you did develop a real appreciation for the biology of this mental illness one in a hundred adults in this country suffers yeah. from schizophrenia. You know, that's a very large number. It is, and a lot of them, I think, live in this shock that we were talking about without getting a lot of support right. and help. And and that may lead to the answer to your question regarding the biology of it, because a couple of things happened for us when we realized the biology part of the illness and the neurotransmitters that weren't working right in Joel's head. It, the statement that he made at one time, it was as, as if seven TV sets were blaring off in his head and he was getting these telepathic messages and messages from us and from his sister and brother to do things that he that was just absolutely amazing. And so the biology helped me come to grips with here was someone who doesn't think like I do. And I think the other piece was that... As you mentioned, it's difficult for parents when your child or someone you love develops an illness because you feel like somehow there's something you did to cause it. And when it's yeah. a mental illness, it's even more so. You feel that somehow it had to be my parenting, your my bad parenting, parenting style, or, or yeah. what we did, yeah. or whatever. Yeah. And realizing the biological side of it, I think, helped us get past that uh, blaming ourselves phase where we were able to accept. Joel, and to accept the fact that we didn't cause it, and that um, there was something going on with him much the same as our daughter, who is a type 1 diabetic, something wasn't working right in his body. But somehow it's easier to um, understand something like diabetes as a, as a biological problem, because the, the manifestations of the illness are physical, and with mental illness, and this is true of depression as well, which is much more common Absolutely. The manifestations are emotional, mental, spiritual. Yeah. Absolutely. It was amazing for me because it was like a weight had been lifted when off my shoulders. When the doctor told you it the was... The psychiatrist mm-hmm. looked at us in the face and said, this is absolutely biological. This mm-hmm. is nothing you did. We had been going over and over and over. Did I do this? Did I do that? Did I not give him enough? Did I give him too much? Did I... Was I hard on him? Was I not hard enough on him? All sorts of things. And... In my head, at least, I thought I had been a better parent to him 
than I'd been to the two other children. Not that he was your not that anything was so awful, but yeah. I mean, just um, I was more patient. I was a little bit more experienced. I felt like I pulled him onto my lap more often and talked things over. And so it was such a blow. And uh, when the doctor, the psychiatrist said, this is uh, simply biological, it was just a gift. Sue Hansen. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is Speaking of Faith from American Public Media. Today I'm speaking with Sue Hansen and her husband, Dan, who's written about their family's struggle to come to terms with their son Joel's schizophrenia. Joel's illness has a religious dimension. He has written a manuscript called A Guide to the Universe, which begins with these words. In writing a book about the greatest entity or living being, God, myself, Jesus Christ reincarnated, Ishua, Jehovah, J, Joel Stephen Hansen, infinitely 99.999% of the universe, the greatest individual independent being, I put much care into writing the truth. Joel's symptoms are tempered somewhat by a heavy regimen of antipsychotic medication. In his book, Joel's father, Dan, struggles passionately with the double-edged sword of psychiatric pharmacology. As you probably know, these medications also carry with them serious side effects. And so there's this dilemma that you're put into as a parent. You want to do what's best for the person you love, and you want to make sure that he gets the best medication and the best pharmacological help. But you also realize that most of the antipsychotics and neuroleptics and mood stabilizers are treating symptoms, and they also alter the brain, and they bring with them potential side effects. The other dimension of it for Joel is that Joel, like all of us, wants to be treated with respect. He wants to be confirmed as a special person. He wants people to believe in him. And when he's treated as if he needs medication to make him real or to make him a person, he has a very, very difficult time dealing with that, and he feels treated as if he were a child. And that is a difficult thing for a parent to watch, happen to someone you love very much and who you imagined would spread his wings and do his thing and and become a person in his own way. And here he is being forced to do something that he does not believe he needs and doesn't Mm -hmm. want to do. And that's... Has that always been true that he didn't want to take the medication or he's never seen the point? No, he's never thought he was ill. He still doesn't believe he's ill. Uh And so he fights the medication at every turn. I mean, he takes it um, under commitment only. And as soon as he's off commitment, it's a matter of usually days, sometimes hours, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and he'll go off the medication immediately. So he's been on um, most of the major antipsychotics, almost all of them at different times, and nothing has taken away his delusion. And uh, we call it a delusion. He calls it reality. People tell him he's not God. He's not Jesus. In his mind, that's as real as my being a wife and mother. It strikes me when I when I read the stories in the book that there's such a fine line between, you know, fantasies that are that are out there in our culture all over the place that we all enjoy. You know, a world where anything is possible, where he sits in a snow with no jacket, waiting mm-hmm. to be transformed. I've seen, you know, I've seen episodes of the X Files, which I love to watch. You know what I'm saying? There's mm-hmm. there's such a fine line between right. images that we kind of celebrate and then what he's given himself over to believing and representing. I think for him, the difference, or one of the big differences between the fantasies that we embrace and his reality, if you will, is that he can't then function in society. Um, it doesn't allow him then to be anything less than God, whether he's at a job or whether he's in a relationship with a woman, which all of his relationships are in his head. And Mm -hmm. so um, Mm -hmm. it's all telepathic. And so this doesn't allow a lot of room for um, communication with other people. Which is why I think we play, we've come to accept Joel, including his belief system, and we don't try to change his belief system. We accept him for someone who believes he's God. And when 
I take walks with him. I let him tell his fantasies and his, and some of them are quite profound. Uh-huh. His perception of things, and and it's why I included a piece of his in the book. I think is that he does have powerful insights if you read between the lines or if you look at words like he does created at the moment. Yeah, and. I think in doing that, uh, we have become in some ways his touchstone to this reality, and hmm. he appreciates our acceptance, and it took us a, f- a while to really get that. Hmm. But he, That's really interesting. And even last night, he called Sue and told her about his telepathic girlfriend, mm-hmm. who he's never met, but he talks to every night, and and she just has this conversation with him, and it makes such a difference to him when we once we've done that he feels like someone's listening to me someone's mm-hmm. hearing me hmm. um, and at the risk of getting off on a tangent we were talking about that and i've always been intrigued by the philosopher and theologian martin buber's i thou concept and i always thought i do it intellectually but say so describe that that idea for you know somebody who's listening who hasn't read Martin Buber and how, and how that relates to Joel. Well, from my reading, and I'm not a theologian, That's so fine. I'm minus, yeah. it's sort of a naive perception of, of Martin Buber, but I've always been intrigued by Martin Buber's thoughts around the God of the in between, the God that emerges in the relationship that you have with someone when you let go of of all of the things in life that perceive that person as instrumental to any means that I have. Uh, Joel has taught that to us in a new way. A reading from the Austrian Jewish philosopher and theologian Martin Buber's classic 1923 work, I and Thou. The relation to the you is unmediated. Nothing conceptual intervenes between I and and you. No prior knowledge and no imagination. And memory itself is changed as it plunges from particularity into wholeness. No purpose intervenes between I and you. No greed and no anticipation. And longing itself is changed as it plunges from the dream into appearance. Every means is an obstacle. Only where all means have disintegrated, encounters occur. From Martin Buber's I and Thou. With Joel, you were present in a bizarre moment, and you quit trying to finish his sentences, or you quit trying to make sense out of it, you quit trying to be rational, and you just... It's unexplainable. So in a way, that's a gift that Joel has given to us, and I think it's the reason that we keep caring and keep the door open so that he can have those moments with us, but more so that maybe for selfish reasons that we can have those moments with him. What's kind of paradoxical about that is that in accepting his his fantasies, if you want to call it that, or his unreality, you in fact tether him more to reality in a way that doesn't happen when you try to convince him that he's ah, wrong. Yes. The big acceptance has been not trying to tell him that he's wrong. I mean, it took me a long time to get to the point where, as a parent, I wasn't saying, "Oh, gee, you don't really, you don't really think that." It's that, it's that mother thing in you, <laughs> and it's just been in the last couple of years, really, that I've been able to step back and and appreciate him for the person he's become, which, by the way, is absolutely nothing like what we thought he was going to be. (laughs) Not that we envisioned him to be a doctor or a lawyer or anything like that. Just, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we thought he was going to grow up and probably marry and have relationships like his sister and brother and and have a life. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't happening. So it's been interesting to try to accept this person that's here instead. I think our oldest son in his writing put something in there about uh, it's as if aliens came and took oh, my brother no, away. I and, he said yeah. he was going to write a movie, Schizophrenia, Invasion of the Soul Snatcher. Yeah, and that yeah. this other person was kind of left behind. And it is it is sort of like that. I mean, this is a different person. And I've grown to love him deeply and appreciate who he has become and the man that he is and and the kindness and gentleness of his spirit, and uh, I do see God in him. 
Sue Hansen. She and her husband Dan are speaking about the practical and spiritual lessons of living with their son Joel, who has schizophrenia. Dan Hansen includes portions of Joel's writing in his book, Room for Jay. Joel has written a book called A Guide to the Universe. I just want to read a little bit of that. I must tell you now that you all have a hard time with change and proper growth. The past here on earth is not that good, so why do you rely on it so much and neglect and abuse the gifts of the present and the future as you do not create your own language, nor do you honor, respect, and understand mine well enough? You are also scared because you do not realize well enough that fear is ultimate evil. And then a little bit later he wrote, I know, and it has been said, that ignorance is the opposite of love. There is no love in ignorance. I believe that, uses exclamation points. If one ignores something, they cannot understand it ever, for they are pushing, sometimes, good things that are necessary to better their lives away from them. It's very wise and provocative and intriguing. It is. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's... Yeah. We, too, we spent, we spent hours trying to um, make sense of his writings, and there's, that's one of... That's very coherent. Those yeah. Are, yeah, those are yeah. coherent <laughs> passages, yeah, and some of it is more rambling. But, right. But and he does have wonderful insights. He does, and that's the kind of a, the stuff that he talks to us about. Once we open the door to the conversation and don't try to fix him or don't try to change him, he will reveal that kind of wisdom to us and talk to us for hours, literally, if we let him. But you do say the people have said to you, oh, in another culture, he would have been a shaman or a prophet, and that that makes you angry. Mm-hmm. Why does that make you angry? I, th- I think that my response, emotional response to that, is that oftentimes people say that as if, well, other cultures would have found a spot for him, and so we should be so happy that he could be could have been a shaman, and that should make us feel so good. And I think what upsets us sometimes is that they don't understand the other dimensions or the other parts of dealing with mental illness, and the sitting in the snow waiting for the aliens, and the um, Joel feeling that he can dodge bullets, or driving without his headlights, or putting himself into dangerous situations, and. And so, whereas I appreciate that, uh, I also sometimes perceive that to be a trivialization of the emotional magnitude of the illness itself. And I think the, the, the truth is that Joel could perhaps also have been a, an outcast. And I think I include in the book uh, Artie Lang's perspective on some of the prophets in the Bible, uh, perhaps displaying some symptoms of schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. Um, but the prophets weren't always treated so greatly either. And maybe Joel is a prophet in some ways because he does remind us of things that we need to be reminded of. And just the piece that you read, some of the wisdom that he has written and that he talks about, I think, is difficult stuff to hear, mm-hmm. uh, such as prophets do or want to say now and then. Uh, but he also needs to live in our reality, and we also deal with the difficulty of helping him do that so that he can survive and perhaps even thrive sometime, someday. And so it's so much more complex than just sort of conjuring up some spiritual role and saying, ah, he could have been a shaman. Yes, he could have been, but mm-hmm. it isn't quite that simple. But it, it is just... I don't want to say fascinating because it's terrible and and, and excruciating. But um, I mean, it does remind you of the complexity of you know what it means to be human and the interplay of our bodies and our minds and ourselves and the world around us. I think you hit it exactly. It's terrible and wonderful at the same time. <laughs> yeah. It is. I mean, it's it's atrocious. It's the most awful thing I could ever imagine as a parent. Mm-hmm. I I really thought. Dan's been through lots of uh, surgeries and cancer and a terrible automobile accident. We have a daughter with diabetes. I really thought I kind of understood chronic illness and pain, but this is amazing. Mental illness is an amazing thing. It takes over your life, and it just doesn't let go, Um, especially serious mental illness. It just, 
It's just there. Sue and Dan Hansen. This is Speaking of Faith. After a short break, more of their story and insights. We'll ask how the religious component of their son's mental illness changes their ideas about the nature of religious belief in all of us. Also, is there room in our culture to consider a schizophrenic personality as another form of human difference and diversity? This exploration continues at speakingoffaith.org. This week, find more on the Hansen story and practical resources and background on mental illness and schizophrenia. With SOF On Demand, you can download an MP3 of this program to your desktop and use the particular section as a guide. Or subscribe to our free weekly podcast. Listen at any time, at any place. Also, find my journal on this week's topic and sign up for our free email newsletter. All this and more at speakingoffaith.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Stay with us. Speaking of Faith comes to you from American Public Media. Speaking of Faith is supported by Faith and Values Media, producers of New Morning, weekdays at 7 on Hallmark Channel. Inspiration from spiritual traditions and from ordinary people doing extraordinary things. New Morning, weekdays at 7 on Hallmark Channel. And by Thrive and Builds with Habitat for Humanity, an opportunity for Lutherans to help build more than 300 decent homes this year with families in need. Online at thriveandbuilds.com. Welcome back to Speaking of Faith, Public Radio's conversation about religion, meaning, ethics, and ideas. I'm Krista Tippett. Today, Room for Jay. The title of a book written by my guest, Dan Hansen, chronicling his family's struggle to live with and learn from the mental illness of their son, Joel. Joel, who's now 30, had a psychotic break when he was 20. Religious delusions are a common symptom of schizophrenia, a brain disorder that affects approximately 2.2 million American adults, or over 1% of the population age 18 and older. Some sufferers believe that they commune with or become angels or demons. Joel Hansen believes that he is God. His parents, Dan and Sue, have been describing how they've come to accept Joel on his own terms, so long as he's not hurting himself or others. In doing so, they are able to sustain a relationship with him and make him feel that there is a place for him in this world. I wondered how living with Joel changed their understanding of the basic question of what it means to be human. You know, you know, you talked about him kind of having different selves, and and when I read your story, even when I look at the pictures of him that are in the book, you know, it's kind of like the expression on his face is different. His eyes are different. I mean, am I imagining that? No, no you're not. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so, I mean, it is almost as though that little boy became someone different. As you've said, he's not the person you thought he would be. Well, we n- none of us know what our children will be like, but, but this is different. Right. I mean, how do you think about the human spirit looking at Joel? Do you have different questions than you had before? Well, when I look at Joel, if Joel mm-hmm. were sitting here right now, his spirit, his 
belief, his living in hope, and it's just absolutely amazing. And the stuff that he's been through and the places that he's been forced to live. And for me, it's sometimes his the strength of his spirit has actually held me up. I think I, I write in the book the piece where we visited him in the psych ward and one of the first times, and we were just devastated, and we were so worried about him and what was going to happen. And he sort of put his arm around us and said, <laughs> it'll be okay, don't worry about mm-hmm. it. And so if you'll ask Joel, if you were to ask Joel the question, how are you? Well, you know I'm always getting better, Dad. Really? That would be his standard answer. Mm-hmm. I'm always getting better because he just believes. And part of it is his belief system that he's God and that he's connected to the universe. What is that? He says that he's 99.999% of the universe. Mm-hmm. I think we're the rest of it. We're the other point oh oh one But he's very connected to the idea, I think, that... Uh, um, not that God is necessarily in each of us, but that we're all connected. Somehow there's something within each and every person that connects us one to the other. And it sounds kind of new agey, but it's very much where he comes from. It's very spiritual and very at the deepest level. Um, he has uh, the utmost respect for human life, other human life, and not his own necessarily, because, of course, he doesn't think he's human. Oh, he doesn't. Uh-huh. I mean, he uh-huh. doesn't. He doesn't consider his body to be uh, so fallible. Or? So fallible. Huh. No, even now on strong medication, um, he pushes himself absolutely to the limits. Hmm. So, but his his um, spiritual connection is quite beautiful, and to be respected. Mm-hmm. But is it the same person? Do you feel that this is the same person you? Raised from? Oh no, absolutely not. So what? Where did that other person go? Well, you know, I'm thinking about how we all change, and as you pointed out, we sort of evolve, and as we take on new things, we become new persons through our new relationships and our new involvement. And sometimes it's been said that schizophrenia causes yourself to get stuck in time, and in some ways that's true because once Joel created this identity of being God and Jesus and, and all-encompassing in the universe, it was such a an identity that could protect him from anything and everything, and it became stuck in time. But where did that little boy go? I don't know. It's almost as if I look into his eyes and I see, I see this little boy who was sort of vulnerable, who was very sweet in his own way and mischievous at times. And every once in a while, he will... Joke and kid, and and in ways that were very similar to where what he was like when he was a teenager, and we'll get this glimpse of Joel that was more like the Joel that was um, that we communicated with prior to the psychotic episode, and so it's as if in Joel, like all of us, are all these selves that have emerged, but that. The God Joel has taken over and become the dominant part of his life and is is his true identity mm-hmm. in terms of his belief. I think that mm. he's continued to be a very loving and kind person. And um, I'm hoping, at least, that we were somewhat influential in that because he was greatly loved. I mean, he was born our youngest and all four of us thought he was just (laughs) wonderful Mm -hmm. and uh so i I see that as a big a big uh plus sue henson i'm krista tippett and this is speaking of faith from american public media my guests dan and sue henson struggled with their son joel's schizophrenia in isolation for several years before discovering a resource in nami the national alliance for the mentally ill sue is now co-chair of the legislative committee of her regional nami chapter dan has written a book about their family's odyssey that does not flinch at the complexities and heartbreak of joel's disease But he also raises provocative questions about mental illness as a form of human difference. You know, I I kind of feel like, on the one hand, you know, you're living with the fullness of this mental illness and with doctors and with medications and you've educated yourselves and you belong, you work with NAMI and... 
But there's a way in which you kind of are pushing at the concept of mental illness as a as a limiting concept. Um, you know, and you, you you have a quote near the end of your book from Margaret Mead. If we are to achieve a richer culture, rich in contrasting values, we must recognize the whole gamut of human potentialities and so weave a less arbitrary social fabric, one in which each diverse human gift will find a place. And I kind of think, you know, what you're saying there is that mm, schizophrenia, or the, the way Joel is, which includes this fact that he is schizophrenic, is also a point of diversity, which is a or difference that we make a lot of that word in our culture. Is that right? Are you? Yeah, that that is exactly what I'm trying to say. But having said that, I also realize that it's easy for me to say that and for Sue to say that, but mm-hmm. it's much more difficult for the world uh, to accept Joel for who he is. And I know that without us, he would perhaps have a more difficult time because there aren't a whole lot of other people that are willing to listen to Joel or to have the conversations with him that he likes to have. And so as much as I would love to think that Joel could be part of what we call diversity, reality sets in for me, too, and I realize that that probably can't happen because every time Joel goes off medication and becomes psychotic and what we would call manic and manifests his God powers to the degree that he believes he has, he can, mm-hmm. society won't let him do that. And well, and this kind of difference is frightening. And if you met a stranger is. exhibiting these symptoms, it Absolutely. would just simply be frightening. They, don't, ex- they exactly. don't know him as your son. It's yeah. exactly what I was going to say. I mm-hmm. think that the, the difference with mental illness is that it can be extremely frightening mm-hmm. and, and justifiably so. Uh, many people who are who have mental illness uh, do grasp onto a greater, uh, different reality mm-hmm. and a different personality. And some are God, some are Jesus, some are Satan. And so that's, you know, that puts it in a different different perspective completely. So society certainly can be excused for being a little taken aback by mental illness. But they also, I think society also needs to uh, uh, step up and look at it in a new light and say, this could be my son. This could be my husband. This could be my child. Um, because they, Joel has a great deal to offer. Um, he's intelligent, and he's kind, and he's gentle, and he's wonderful with children. I think uh, um, he, can, he can give society the gift of his perceptions. You know, you tell these, you tell various stories in the book that have to make me smile. I mean, say when he was once being taken to the hospital and you saw him really chatting with the ambulance attendant when they got there and like they're old friends and he said, it's okay, dad, he knows who I am. And he also had a judge once, he said, he knows who I am. And I mean, I think of that ambulance attendant and it sounds like this was a real act of caring, which completely put your son at ease in what could have been a totally traumatic. And the other side of that is that Joel is very good at putting others at ease, too. I'm God, and he's relaxed with it, and they... Interesting, you know, we've had to go through the terrible process of calling the police in an ambulance to get him Mm -hmm. into the hospital because he needed needed help and didn't recognize his limits. And each time we've done that, it's been just terrible because we've gone through this horrible feeling of being Judas and calling the police on our old child. And But Joel has handled it so well in every case, and so have the... So have the um, people associated with the ambulance and the police have been wonderful. But Joel is, is is absolutely amazing in these situations and has the ability to put them at ease as well and mm. to create a conversation so that between our house mm. and the emergency room, Joel had created a relationship with this ambulance driver, even though he was sharing with him that he was God and how wonderful it was and you know, here they are chatting as if they're old friends. Mm-hmm. It's just absolutely, um, he never ceases to amaze us, I think. I want to ask you, um, we haven't really talked about, quote unquote, the system, uh, the court system, the medical system that that you have really, really had to deal with intensively having a son with schizophrenia. I, I think I want to ask the question this way, you know, when Sue, when you said a minute ago that um, what you'd like 
that you understand that this is frightening and that Joel can't just be out making everyone feel comfortable in society in every situation, just another different person. But, you know, I wonder then if, if the, these people who come into your home and who encounter Joel, who encounter him as a son, a beloved son in a home with a family, if that's also a different way even, even in that first moment of encounter changes the interaction. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Were he a street person, mm-hmm. I'm sure it would be perhaps a different encounter. And that's what we need to look at. Right. For sure. Right. I mean, Joel is a beloved son and, and they come to our home and they see that we're this connected family. And there's uh-huh. many people on the streets who aren't afforded that same courtesy. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. There's it would change everything if you looked at the person on the street who's mumbling and carrying on as this could possibly be Joel in 10 years. Sue and Dan Hansen, who's written Room for Jay, A Family's Struggle with Schizophrenia. I wondered how their own understanding of God has been affected by living with a son who believes that he is God. You know, this is a line from your book, Dan. You said, as you might imagine, it is hard to take God to church with you, meaning Joel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I think a cynic might say, maybe we're all going around manufacturing this and schizophrenia is just showing us that. I mean, is that a reaction you ever had, that you questioned the whole idea because Joel told you he was God? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. I think we both we, we spent hours talking about yeah. this. I think for me, the concept of God changed with Joel's illness. Um, uh, it's been a long time since I believed that God was out there. I've always believed for many a long time that God was within. But um, it still changed my perception of God. I, I used to go to church and, and consider that God was present, but uh, I didn't really look at all the people around me. And I think for me, Joel forced me to see God in him, whether I wanted to or not. Mm-hmm. And then thus, you know, by seeing God in him and, and by being forced to see God in him, uh, I, I saw it so clearly in others. Yeah, and then it's not about believing because Joel has sort of destroyed this belief system notion because nobody has a belief system quite like Joel. <sighs> in fact, his belief system is extremely complex. And, and so it does make you look at, at spirituality, faith, and God as something that is not about a belief system. It's not about what you believe in. It's about what you experience and what you're able to allow yourself to experience in the form of caring and having the faith that somehow that caring makes a difference and that it doesn't have anything to do with what you believe in. In fact, it's kind of funny because that line about taking God to church is that when you're sitting in a church pew next to Joel, knowing that he believes that he is God and and he's looking around and whether the congregation knows it or not, he is blessing everyone in that <laughs> congregation and he's blessing the words and we know that and so part of you has to chuckle a little bit and kind of laugh and say, yeah, God is present. <laughs> yeah. So. I think the other thing for me, the, the other really big thing that changed was... Um, there's a, a quote from, I think it's Carl Jung, uh, bidden or unbidden, God is present. And for me, that became very real because there were many days when I would be so so wrapped up in the illness and so down that I, it was difficult to pray or difficult to feel the presence of God. But just knowing somewhere deep inside me that whether I wanted it or not, God was around me, lifted me up. And, and continues to do that. And I, that has been helpful. I want to ask you this. At the beginning of this chapter, with the death of a child and the birth of a God, you quote from Joel's book, A Guide to the Universe, mm-hmm. there is no love in ignorance. What do you think he means by that? That's a very intriguing sentence. There is no love in ignorance. It's hard for any of us to put words into other people, but Joel's mind is especially (laughs) difficult to put words into. 
But there's part of me that wonders if Joel is saying to us, quit being so ignorant, quit disrespecting me, quit not listening to me, quit being so ignorant as to not accept someone like me. Yes, I'm different, but don't you know that I'm God? Don't you know that I have wisdom to give you? Don't you know that I love you? Don't you know that... Why are you so ignorant? I think, you know, it's almost prophetic. In and a that way. in that, ig- that, that ignorance is a failure of love. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and truth. Mm-hmm. The truth, as mm-hmm. he says at All the right. end. Right. And that, uh, you know, almost like the truth, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. <laughs> Why are you pris- imprisoning yourself in this mm-hmm. linear thinking? Mm-hmm. That, imprisoning yourself as much as imprisoning him. Yes. One of the things he goes through every time we go into the medication is that. Why are you trying to limit me? Why are you trying to put me down? Mm-hmm. You want me to be just like the rest of you. You know, and you want to cry. Part of you wants to intervene and say, no, no, no. And then you know that that would not be the best thing for him either. So. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that right now, today, while we're talking, Joel is living on his own and doing pretty well. I mean, what is the prognosis for him, or is there such a thing? No. It's, you know... If we were to listen to the experts, the prognosis for Joel is is perhaps not real good because of his lack of insight into his illness. On the other hand, I have to believe that the longer Joel is able to live in our reality, even though he does not believe that he is of our reality, the longer he's able to see that there that he can exist in our world and still keep his belief system and have conversations with people about it, uh, the more optimistic we are that perhaps he will find a way to live in this world. I don't think his prognosis, according to physicians, according to psychiatrists, would probably be real good, simply because uh, patients whose insight is non-existent uh, don't fare as well. And you seem to have no no hope that he will somehow stop believing he's God. I mean, you, you've oh, accepted that. We absolutely hope. Mm-hmm. I mean, right. yes, we hope. But I think the reality is chances are good he won't. And so we try to deal with um, the fact that it probably won't change. Um, and so having said that, I, I know that his fight will always be against the medication and against the physicians. We've worked twice with a physician, with a psychiatrist, to try to take him off medication to see if that is possible for Mm -hmm. him to simply function without medication. Um, And it isn't. He he drops off the edge very quickly. And um, that's, that's that edge where he puts himself in harm's way very quickly. You know, Dan, you said that you define hope differently because you live with Joel, having lived with Joel. What does that word hope mean differently because you're Joel's parents? Yeah, I think at first we hoped that Joel would get better. We hoped that this was just something that was episodic and that it would go away. And that there would be some cure. I mean, after all, we have cures for cancer. We have cures for all of this Mm -hmm. stuff. There certainly should be a cure for this. And then when we realized that there isn't, we were forced to look at hope in a different way, a hope that I think is much more grounded in reality, a hope that is much more uh, about hoping that his day will be good today, about hoping that he feels good about himself. Uh, I mentioned in the book that Perhaps hope is more like love to us. It, we continue to love Joel in spite of the fact that we know that he will put himself in harm's way. We continue to hope for Joel in spite of the evidence that would say that he is probably not going to get better and that he's probably going to always deal with this illness. We can't create a perfect life for Joel, but we can love him and we can care for him. We can keep the communication open and we can keep the hope alive. And who knows? (laughs) 
Dan and Sue Hansen live in Maple Grove, Minnesota. Dan is a professor of communications at Augsburg College and the author of Room for Jay, A Family Struggles with Schizophrenia. Dan and Sue Hansen resist any attempt to romanticize their son's condition. But their most provocative suggestion, I think, comes as a natural consequence of their very personal struggle to accept Joel and love him as he is now. In a society with room for Jay, Joel would be seen first as a man, not as a schizophrenic. He would be treated, indeed, as a beloved person with an unusual perspective on life and the world around him. The Hansen story suggests that our modern ability to diagnose and classify stands in some tension with our emerging cultural value of diversity. They offer no easy resolution to this tension. But in pointing it out, they propose that we all might develop a fuller and more demanding imagination about the virtue of human difference. Continue this conversation at speakingoffaith.org. Contact us with your thoughts. Find further background and resources on mental illness. Now you can listen on demand for no charge to this and previous programs in our archives section or subscribe to our free weekly podcast. Listen whenever and wherever you want. You can also sign up for our email newsletter, which includes my journal on each topic and a preview of upcoming shows. That's speakingoffaith.org. This program was produced by Kate Moose, Mitch Hanley, Colleen Sheck, Jody Abramson, and Ken Hom. Our web producer is Trent Gillis, with assistance from Ilona Piotrowska. The executive producer of Speaking of Faith is Bill Buesenberg, and I'm Krista Tippett. Speaking of Faith is supported by Faith and Values Media, producers of New Morning, Weekdays at 7 on Hallmark Channel. Inspiration from spiritual traditions and from ordinary people doing extraordinary things. New Morning, weekdays at 7 on Hallmark Channel. And by Thrivent Financial for Lutherans, a Fortune 500 financial services organization. Funding is also provided by the Ford Foundation, a resource for innovative people and institutions worldwide. On the web at fordfound.org. The Corporation for Public Broadcasting. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. And the George Family Foundation, funding innovative ideas in integrative medicine, education, and spirituality in everyday life. Next week, the evolving perspective of American evangelicals on climate change, poverty, and politics. Please join me for a frank and wide-ranging conversation with the Vice President of Governmental Affairs of the National Association of Evangelicals, Richard Sizek. That's the next Speaking of Faith. American Public Media.